This may seem strange to you, but I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. We will read through verse 32. This is Paul's letter to the Christian church in Rome during a time of persecution and difficulty. Again, we'll begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 1. Okay. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's as far as we'll go. I'd like to begin this morning in a rather unique way. I'd like to read to you the opening line. Of the Declaration of Independence. That's unique. 
the Declaration of Independence issued by Congress on July 4th, 1776. It reads this. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Two phrases there have always caught my eye. Uh, the first being, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. I admire that phrase. Because it acknowledges that there are events that take place in the course of human history that require a timely and clear response. A declaration, if you will. With the case of our founding fathers, they were of the unanimous view that the relationship between the colonies and the British Empire had irrevocably deteriorated in such a way that a timely and clear response was necessary. And so Thomas Jefferson wrote those words when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. The other phrase I admire in the opening paragraph is this one. The separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. The founding fathers of our nation did not agree on the theological specifics of nature's God, but they found it necessary to ground their response to these human events that had taken place to ground their response in a law higher than themselves and in a judge higher than themselves, lest they be nothing more than mere human rebels at the forefront of a colonial dispute. They then acknowledge the laws of nature and nature's God. And they go on in their opening paragraph in this declaration to ground their entire argument upon the principle that nature has a God who is self-evident and thus certain truths had been determined by this Congress to be self-evident. One of those truths being that God as creator has granted rights related to human dignity that no man could be alienated from. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That word creation speaks to a creator. It even says that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. This is without a doubt a religious document, a theological argument that our nation was built on. If the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence are familiar to you, perhaps the closing paragraph is not so familiar, for after making their case for independence, the final paragraph begins with these words, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. And it goes on to declare the colonies as free states. We appeal to the supreme judge of the world. By that they mean the Lord God. For the rectitude of our intentions. For the morality. That's what the word rectitude means. For the morality 
For the morality, for the righteousness of what we're doing, we appeal to the supreme judge. The king of England was not going to approve of their independence. So we appeal to the Lord God Almighty for his moral approval, the supreme judge of the world. That's what they called our God. This is sobering methodology. The method that they used to justify the founding of our nation is rooted in a self-evident God who created men and women equally, who is also the supreme judge of the world, capable of giving moral approval to what they are doing or not giving moral approval to what they are doing. You don't hear leaders speak that way anymore. Well, Romans 1 verse 19 also appeals to the God of nature. A God who who has moral authority, who created men and women and bestowed them with a value that was self-evident, just like our Declaration of Independence. Romans 1.19 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. That is the same as self-evident. This is the same self-evident creator spoken of in the Declaration of Independence 1,700 years later. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's from Romans 1. This is the God that our founding fathers appealed to, the supreme judge of the world who alone could declare their own declaration moral in the highest authority, and they hoped that He would. But Paul goes on to say in Romans 1, that there is a degradation in society. There is a downward drifting in nations and governments. A law of theological entropy, if you will. The law of entropy that what is in order drifts to disorder. Uh, where orderly thoughts of basic moral truths drift toward a denial of those moral truths and a denial of the supreme judge of the world who will hold men and women accountable for them. Verse 21 of Romans 1 says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. The word became, indicating a gradual, downward, spiral, a transformation a degradation of knowing God and yet becoming over time impotent, futile in their thinking. It says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They didn't start that way. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and so on and so forth. That is undeniably the course of our own nation that we've descended upon. Although we once knew of God, we have not continued to glorify Him as God. We have not continued in thankfulness before Him, and our thoughts, our thinking, our ideologies have become futile, empty, Our foolish hearts, speaking nationally now of the voices that drive our national politics, our philosophies, our laws and culture today, our foolish hearts have become darkened. In the name of wisdom, we have become 
fools. We think ourselves very wise. Yet we have rejected our creator. We have traded, we have exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God. We have freely given that away in order that we might worship corruptible men and women. We have become our own gods, our own saviors, our own moral authorities. And as moral authorities, we have licensed ourselves to do whatever it is that we want without a second thought to the supreme judge of the world that our founding fathers considered. As verse 32 says, we have become people who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We license people to do evil because we know no authority higher than ourselves. If the Declaration of Independence were written today, I am very confident that we would find no appeal to the Supreme Judge of the world to give us moral justification. For the people in our land, in the majority, know no God greater than themselves. And in this we have become futile in our thinking, darkened in our hearts, foolish in our weaknesses, which are our sins, all the while proclaiming these as great strengths. We take pride in our evil. All of the evil written as a warning to us in Romans 1 has befallen us gradually, nationally. Evaluate each criminal charge for yourself in verses 26 through 31. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Evaluate for yourselves. For their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. This is our world. Every single one. Especially the final three. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Don't cross the world. They're not steep on second chances. These sins need no explanation. They are familiar to us. As verse 32 says, we as a people are not only fully aware of them, we are also fully aware of God's word against them. And possessing such knowledge, we nationally, by law and custom, not only embrace these evils, but give our hearty approval to those who practice them. Sin is like a drug. It makes slaves of people, both individually and collectively. It's a harsh master. For generations, the people of our country have gone year by year and decade by decade just a little further, just a little further. And each generation has drawn an arbitrary line in the sand of morality, telling themselves, we'll go this far, but not beyond that point. 
That is the exchange of Romans 1. A gradual transaction whereby we trade bit by bit the joy of being made in the image of a glorious God for the shameful pleasure of being a little more evil. We're like children who unwittingly will give vast sums of money for little pieces of candy because we don't understand the value of one versus the other. We surrender pieces of our soul as if they were nothing. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Like an addict, we become desensitized to the moral boundaries that we have crossed, to the immorality of what we're doing. Immorality that would have appalled prior generations becomes normalized. And we don't even see the destruction and the ruin that the sin is causing to us in correlation to what we're doing. We recognize the breakdown of the family as if it's somehow disconnected from the moral boundaries that we have crossed. We recognize the difficulty of absent fathers or broken mothers as if we are forgetting the connection to the moral boundaries that we have already blown by. And we pretend that there's some political solution or some cultural solution or some ideological solution to slap a band-aid on the destruction that this departure from God's law has wreaked on us and there's not. You cannot legislate us back into favor with God. Humpty Dumpty is not so easily returned to his original form. And there's a blindness to this. I now, in my 40s, listen to a voice like Bill Maurer, who in my 20s, I saw advance the morality of our culture to every new step. A guy who was at the forefront of Christians are absurd, and there is no God, and I am an atheist, and let's blow past all the moral boundaries of a previous generation. And now, 20 years later, I watch him futilely try to plant some flag in the sand saying, whoa, 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 we've gone too far. Did you think, Mr. Maurer, that we would get to your arbitrary line in the sand and stop? No, no. Behind you is another group, another generation of people who are ready to pick up the banner and march further. To them, the great radical moral boundaries that you crossed in your generation are normalized. And now they want to blow past into further things. And this is where you get the curmudgeonly older people saying, what has the world become? What has the world become? What has the world become? Because they thought their arbitrary line in the sand would not be crossed. Oblivious to the mastery of sin. Oblivious to the destruction of sin. To the insidiousness of sin. To the evil of sin. To the deceptiveness of sin not realizing that they are enslaving themselves to an evil that knows no boundary. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary. I had every intention this morning to begin our study in the book of Daniel and Lord willing I will do so next week although I am sensitive to the fact that I have said that now several times. I know But I am compelled once again to speak clearly to several issues. And I do say once again. These issues are now at the forefront of our own generation's moral decline. So I will speak to four points this morning. 
It should be understood as the clear and unanimous affirmation of the God-given pastors of this local church that we believe that the word of God speaks clearly and authoritatively to one, the ordained union of marriage, two, the creative design of gender, three, the righteousness of human sexuality within the confines of marriage alone, and four, the enmity that we should expect as Christians for faithfully holding fast to the word of God in this world. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to declare God's word, the pastors of a church must prioritize clarity and faithfulness in teaching and counsel above all other earthly concerns. So this morning I will make three short statements on these subjects. It is my hope that there will be no ambiguity, if in fact ambiguity currently exists, as to what the Bible teaches and what we hold to officially in our church. Statement one. Gender and sexual assignment are the same. There is much that the Bible has to say about this, but I will offer only a basic summary this morning, and I'm happy for a more in-depth conversation with you at your leisure, I am willing. But for this morning, we will ground our case in one passage, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When we read the word that God created male and female, we understand that God claims sovereignty over the biological order that results in a differentiation between male and female. Male and female are not the same, nor are they to be manipulated to appear the same, for God has created with the intention of biologically clarity, hard-coding our gender into our genetic code. Manhood and womanhood cannot be separated, according to our Creator, from His biological design in creation. God has not created a male woman or a female man. Gender is the anatomical reality that flows from biological design, of which God as Creator claims sovereignty. Any attempt to alter the anatomy of an individual, so as to reclassify the biological reality assigned to them by God is immoral and not to be approved of by Christian people. Similarly, acquiescing to societal pressure by using human gender language, such as pronouns, that deny the self-evident work of our Creator is not permissible among Christian people, though we should have great compassion for those who struggle in this fallen world with an understanding of their bodies and identities. We cannot, in good faith, embrace a deception that will ultimately, if not repented of, cost someone their soul. Christian people should be kind people, gentle people, gracious people, merciful, patient, and self-controlled, especially with those who are struggling as well as with those who oppose them. But in our attempts to help others, we must not compromise the truth for the sake of a lie. That is not help. For we know that those who make a practice of unrighteousness, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, will not 
inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Romans 1. This is the word of God, not the word of Reggie. As the Lord Jesus himself spoke with truth, compassionately, so we as his disciples must speak truth with compassion. And when the world identifies this as hateful speech, which it has, we must speak wisdom anyway, for the Bible speaks to our souls when it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We know the things that come from God are not permissible. They crucified Jesus. The wisdom of God is not hatred. If the truth spoken from the mouths of Christian people, spoken with kindness and with gentleness and with self-control, if that truth is deemed evil and hateful by the world, we must attribute this unjust assessment to the futile thinking of darkened hearts prevalent in those who have exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for the glory of corruptible men and women who professing to be wise themselves in these matters have inadvertently become fools. Deuteronomy 22.5, 1 Corinthians 11.3-16 represent texts from the Old Testament that clearly attribute the gender identity of a person to the hand of God alone in creation, both Old and New Testament alike, and condemn attempts to reverse the real gender of a person with outward trickery. In Deuteronomy, God uses the word abomination to describe men who would dress as women, women who would dress as men. The word abomination is not used frequently throughout the law of God. It is reserved for gross sexual misconduct and idolatry. The sin of gender denial is akin to both in the eyes of the Lord, for he connects them with this one word, abominable, abomination. This is not a new teaching in our church. We have spoken clearly to this multiple times. For a recent example, you can review the sermon titled Head Coverings and Rolls from 1 Corinthians 11, which was August of 2021. I would not cast out someone who is visiting our church and listening to the gospel while struggling with gender reality. I would not do that. But I would also not affirm unhealthy and dishonoring conclusions about their gender either. And I would expect the same from every Christian man and woman. Statement number two. Male and female are complementary to each other in marriage. This is true sexually and in the context of Christian marriage. It is true spiritually. In this statement, I make three quick subpoints. One, marriage is an ordained union between a man and a woman. That statement, by the way, is the exact title of the sermon I preached in October of 2013. Marriage is an, is an ordained union between a man and a woman. Marriage between a man and a woman is not a specifically Christian institution. It's an institution given by God to all people. And Genesis 2, whereby God says, after the marriage of Adam and Eve, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is only one kind of true marriage, the kind that God ordained, and everything else is falsehood by another name. The institution of marriage came from God directly from the beginning as part of His created order for all people. If any state, through any form of government, legally defines marriage in any other way, Christians owe their allegiance to God on the matter and not the state. This is not a new teaching from our church. There are many sermons online from our regular preaching on marriage, which are easily accessible to you. The sermon I referenced was 2013. It was preached less than a year into my own pastorate here. Additionally, there are messages from my father preached on our website predating my own teaching. He did a seven-week series on marriage. I've never done that. We have a near three-decade history of preaching with clarity on marriage regularly. Second sub-point on marriage. Sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is part of God's creative design. Human sexuality, therefore, is good only in the context of the marriage institution. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful and to be rejected by Christian people. This has been the clear teaching of our church for as long as I have been a member, which is going back nearly 30 years, most recently, from a sermon just in 2021, Marriage and the Culture of Fools, 1 Corinthians 7. But we teach routinely on sexual immorality in our classes, and our Bible studies, because, because the Bible teaches frequently on the subject. It does not come up because we're trying to make it a special kind of sin, It comes up frequently because it frequently comes up in the Bible. Sexual sin is not a special class of sin that super condemns someone to hell. But because of its personal nature and its deep connections to who we are and our most meaningful relationships, sexual sin is given special attention in God's Word. God knows that our sexual expressions are powerful in our lives and He speaks to it repetitively. To fail sexually is not the condemnation of one's soul. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. But to deny that sexual sin is sin is inviting the judgment of God upon us. Christians must be clear about these things as strange as we may look to the rest of the world around us. Third subpoint on marriage. Marriage was not intended to end in divorce, but rather marriage foreshadows the relationship between Christ and the church, and it should be binding until death. I have preached faithfully on divorce. Two examples are from sermons titled Marriage and Divorce, and Marriage is a Foreshadowing of the Church's Relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a lengthy title, that's a mouthful of a title. The former sermon was November 2017, the latter from October 2013. I tell you this to make it clear that we as a church have not avoided these difficult things. We know they are deeply personal. We know people who have experienced divorce carry pain and emotions and perspectives unique to them with them. Our intention is not to hurt anyone, but we are under obligation to speak plainly and clearly about these things from God's word as Jesus does himself in Matthew 19, as Paul does in Ephesians 5. God's word is clear. 
It's not my job to dissect it into what I think is palatable and what I think isn't. We cannot shy away from cultural battle lines where Scripture speaks with clear authority. Which brings me to the third and final statement to be declared this morning. We are strangers in this world and we should expect people in the world to treat us unkindly for our faith. 1 Peter 2.11, which Pastor Steve taught from on Wednesday night, tells us that we are sojourners, travelers, pilgrims in this world. I, I love my country, perhaps more than I rightly should. I feel very happy and blessed to be an American. I admire a great deal about our national heritage, but this world is not my home. I am a son of the kingdom of God. He has bought my citizenship at great personal cost. My allegiance is there. I should not be surprised if, in the course of human events, my country does not approve of me. Romans 8, 7 says plainly, the carnal mind is enmity with God. The human mind, left to its own devices, will not be loyal to God but will declare spiritual war against him by rejecting his moral instruction in favor of their own desires. James 4.4 asks the reader plainly, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that? By this, James means that if we desire the good, friendly opinion of the spiritually darkened world around us, we will be forced to join their sinful rebellion against God for the privilege of being called their friend. That cost is far too high. I would like for the world to think of me as an honorable, kind, giving, gracious, just person. But if the cost of the world's opinion is the betrayal of the supreme judge of the world, then let me be counted a hate-mongering scoundrel in the eyes of the world so that I can hear from the Lord one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't misunderstand me. There should be no hatred in my heart towards any man or woman, only love for others, love for my brothers and sisters, love for my neighbor, love for my enemies. But if speaking the truth in love is considered hateful in the eyes of the world, which it is, by the way, then like our founding fathers, I will appeal to the supreme judge of the world for moral agreement of the truth which I declare. In John 16, Jesus plainly tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. Such a clear, sobering assurance from the Lord himself, ought to sink into our souls. In this world, you will have trouble. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus plainly tells us that we will face the likelihood of persecution in this world for our allegiance to him. And yet he follows that warning with the instruction that we should nonetheless be the light of the world that cannot be hidden. 
whether we experience persecution or not. Christians are people who live in a world that is spiritually darkened. Just as Romans 1 says, and their hearts were darkened. Christians are called to stand out and to be light in the middle of that. By declaring these things to you, I mean to make it clear once again where this church fellowship has stood, continues to stand, and will continue to stand on these most pressing cultural issues. We hold these truths as essential to the Christian faith for denying any one of them requires a denial of the plain authority of God's word itself. And if we undercut the authority of God's word, we are left without knowledge of him and hopeless. This morning it has been my task to pause from our regular teaching and remind you of these things, to reaffirm them, if indeed it is necessary to remind you. And I want to conclude by reminding you of this, that the same God who speaks so clearly to sin has spoken clearly concerning salvation from it. For he has not left us condemned without hope, but has taken great and drastic measures so that we might be saved from eternal judgment in hell. For this great supreme judge of the world, whom our forefathers spoke of in their Declaration of Independence, has set aside the many crimes that we have committed before him and placed the judgment of all such offenses upon the shoulders of an innocent man. This innocent man, Jesus, willfully bearing the condemnation of all criminals, has submitted himself to the execution the penalty of our sin, knowing that God would declare his personal innocence by way of the resurrection and being executed at the cross for all of our sin. He has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven where he waits at the right hand of God the Father to return to this earth upon which he will give us new eternal bodies. And we who have loved and believed in him will be given an inheritance befitting princes and princesses of the great king of all creation. At which point every man, both living and the dead, will rise to stand before this Savior and give an account for their lives. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those men and women who are found written in the book of life by way of their saving faith in Jesus will be granted eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth with new bodies, incorruptible, without sin and suffering. Those not found in the book of life because of their rejection of Jesus will be judged for their evil works and cast into the lake of fire forever, which is the second death. And we are thus warned by the Lord Jesus in the last chapter of the Bible. Now I'll ask you to turn in closing to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to read verses 9 through 11 to you because I think it's a good place for us to close. Maybe. Hopefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
This is one of those places where it makes clear the importance of not practicing a life of sin, but of repenting and fighting sin and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. For it says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And I would emphasize that to you this morning, brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then this powerful phrase at the beginning of verse 11. You see it? And such were some of you. He's talking to a church, to a people saved, to a people redeemed, to a people given the right to be called sons of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Me. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Christian people are sinners who have been saved out of the mastery of sin. Who have been set free. We are addicts who have been freed from the power of a drug. We have been given the right to be called the sons and daughters of the living God. We have been empowered by His Spirit so that our lives may be transformed sometimes painfully, sometimes painfully slowly. But through the washing of the water of the Word of God as it takes effect in who we are. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. And for the clarity of your word. As to the issue of the salvation of men's souls. That of all the foggy thoughts we might have or questions that might remain unanswered for us in this lifetime. Among them will not be found the question of how might I be saved. You have spoken with clarity in some passages bluntly and in other passages poetically and beautifully. But you have spoken clearly. That salvation does not come on the backs of our own human strength, but on the faith that we place in the work of your son Jesus at the cross. We thank you for his death and resurrection, for his vindication and his assault on death and the resurrection from the grave, being the first fruits to eternal life, embodying an eternal body which we ourselves will one day have. Father, if there are those who have not been washed, who have not been cleansed, who are still dead in their sins, 
I ask, Father, that you will transform, that you will convict, that you will work in their hearts even this morning, that they will run forward and cry out with the voices of all who have gone before, what must I do to be saved? Help us to speak clearly to these things 52 weeks a year. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.